Well, hello and welcome to the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. My name is Eddie Cohn. Happy Labor Day weekend to you all. Really excited to welcome psychologist, physician, professional physician, Dr. Mackenzie Webster to the podcast today. So you don't have to take my word for it that Instagram and social media are affecting or ruining the world. You get to listen to a conversation that I had with a real-life physician, psychologist here in Los Angeles, Dr. Mackenzie Webster. If you recognize the last name, that's because I've actually had Mackenzie's husband on the show, Chris Webster, maybe about six months ago. No, Mackenzie is not my therapist. Um, she is a she, she's obviously the wife of my friend Chris Webster. So I was speaking to Chris a couple months ago, and I thought it would be really wonderful to have Mackenzie on the show. So quick intro today. If you enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes, give it a review, write your personal thoughts about the episode on iTunes, give it a five star. Um, head over to Instagram or Twitter at Eddie Cohn and say hello. You can also visit my website, imeddiecohn.com, to join the monthly newsletter. You could also support the show directly by visiting patreon.com backslash Eddie Cohn, where I'm creating specific content, writing music that I'm releasing first on my Patreon page, so head over there. Um, you could book an appointment with Mackenzie to see Mackenzie uh, as a, for, a, for a therapy session, but I guess she's got like a long line down the street um, of people that are anxiously awaiting to see her. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Really quick thought here before you listen. And it's, it's crazy to think about this, but what happens when more people are communicating with one another through posts on Instagram or Twitter. You know, LeBron James and Donald Trump don't see eye to eye. And and instead of actually talking face to face and trying to come up with a resolution, instead they're just like tweeting at each other and see who can sort of like put down the other person or put the other person in their place. And then their followers jump on board and comment. I mean, right now, Candace Owens and Cardi B are having like these back and forth, uh, egomaniacal comments, putting each other down through Instagram and Twitter. And then they're, you know, and to think Cardi B has 75 million followers. So, 75 million people get to listen to Cardi B degrade Candace Owens and use derogatory language. And Cardi B's song right now is number one in in the country. And, you know, I can't help but wonder. Hi, Leo. My cat is just visited. He knows every time I press record. Leo, I can't help but wonder if more people are just speaking to each other through Instagram, through DMs, through Twitter, no longer having face-to-face conversations, what does that mean to our culture? And I think what it means is exactly what's happening right now. Two political parties are becoming more distanced from one another. People don't know how to listen. People don't know how to communicate. People are scared to admit they might be wrong about something which then leads to depression, anxiety, which also leads to why people like Mackenzie are so busy right now in their practice because the influx of depression, anxiety is on the rise. And I think it's, I mean, there's many reasons, but I think one of the biggest reasons is because people need more connection. People are less connected. People are incapable of sympathizing with one another or listening to one another, and people are staring at their phones all day. And all of this stuff right now is creating a more divided world and more anxiety, which is why, you know, I've come to the place now more so than ever where I think the best thing to do is, is just to stay off of these platforms and find a good therapist. So... I hope you enjoy the conversation I had with Mackenzie. I thought it was really interesting. I felt more relaxed by the time I was done with the conversation. I think it's very thoughtful. 
I think you're going to learn a lot and be reminded about the importance of communication, listening. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks again to Mackenzie Webster, Dr. Webster, for taking the time to talk to me. And as always, thank you so much for listening, supporting, and being a part of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral podcast. Are you there? Hi. <laughs> well, I appreciate you. Um, I, I didn't. I really didn't want to tell you what we're doing, but th- you're actually my therapist for the next hour. So I have a, a list of problems that I I want to talk to you about. So is that okay? Sure. <laughs> Why not? I'm about to do that after I talk to you anyway. So <laughs> give me um, give me your. You're a doctor. Yeah. Wait, are we recording right now? Oh yeah. We already been recording. Don't worry. Okay. I'm ready. (laughs) No, because you don't understand. (laughs) If I tell people that we are recording now, then suddenly they just like freeze up and, and you know, they, this is my third time. I'll be fine. (laughs) That's what you've done plenty of podcasts. So you're sure this is old hat. Um, what are your, um, qualifications? What's, what's your title exactly? Um, so I have a PhD in psychology, uh, but my specialty is forensic psychology. So I'm a doctor of forensic psychology. Okay. So I don't prescribe medications. I'm not a psychiatrist, um, but I'm a psychologist. Okay. Um, What's your, um, clientele as a therapist or psychologist typically? Um, so I started out because I, I really, um, I had a really weird, uh, journey, so to speak. Um, I really only focused on sex crimes and sex offenders for about eight or nine years. So my entire experience, learning experience has been with rapists, pedophiles, those types of people. Um, So I only recently, maybe in the past year and a half, started talking with normal, well, quote, (laughs) normal people. There's no such thing. Um, So right now I see anybody, like I see, you know, if you were depressed and wanted a therapist, I work at a practice that really just sees everyone. I don't work uh, doing therapy with sex offenders anymore, but I do do consulting work. Okay. I've worked with some attorneys um, I have a friend who is, uh, the, one of the assistant, um, public defenders in Dallas. And so when he has a particularly, um, upsetting, we'll say, uh, sex offense and he needs an opinion or even like a sentencing recommendation report or an analysis, he'll, he'll contact me and I'll write up a report. Um, and the feds pick up the check. Okay. I like that. Uh, so I still do that. And I also, I'm actually about to start being a professor. So I just got hired to teach sex crimes and perpetrators at Alliant University in their forensic behavioral sciences program. So I'm going to start that in October. Wow. So you're going to be really busy. Yeah, I'm really busy anyway. Uh, so I see about 22 people a week hmm. uh, for therapy. And yeah, it, and it can really range. So I see people who, whose parents just died. I see people who've been the victims of sexual assault. I see people who have depression. I'm sort of a jack of all trades at the moment. I mean, I want, I have obviously questions culturally and technology relating that I want to ask you, but, but one thing I just am thinking about as you're telling me this is, you know, I, I'm a sensitive person. I, I don't think I'm an empath in any way, but I certainly pick up people's energy. Um, I certainly, it's a real thing. And I, I spoke to a, um, a Reiki health professional a few weeks ago. So, I mean, how do you deal with, deal with that? Um, well, I've always had a therapist, my own therapist that I see once a week. And I actually, I wouldn't trust a therapist that doesn't also have their own. Hmm. Um, Because you're right. uh, There's a thing called vicarious traumatization that I experienced actually. And you know, it's 
the name is does what it says on the tin. Like you, you hear so much. Can I curse? Oh, sure. Yeah. You hear so much shit, so much awful shit. Yeah. That you start to get screwed up by it. Um, and the world starts to look very bleak. And, you know, I, I, when I was working, I worked at Scotland Yard for a while in their gang unit because my PhD was all about uh, gang rape. Um, and so I was going into schools and talking to kids about gangs and sexual violence. And these girls would come up to me and tell me these really harrowing, terrible stories. And I ended up uh, really not in a good way. Um, but I didn't notice. Hmm. Until one of my colleagues was like, you need to go home. Yeah. Um, so I did. Uh, so I, when I was working with the sex offenders, when I was working with Scotland Yard, it was a lot more prevalent because the just the volume of horrific things. And if they called me in, it was going to be a horrific thing that I was right. going to hear because that's right. what I specialized in. Um, so, yeah, there's that. And then I think... Also, by the time I got to L.A. and I started doing treatment with guys um, downtown, so uh, registered sex offenders on probation and parole, uh, like GPS monitor guys, like mm -hmm. ankle, ankle monitors, um, I really developed kind of, uh, you really do develop an a, a detachment from it. Um, and also by virtue of the fact that you've heard so much stuff you do get jaded and you get kind of hardened a little bit. So that's kind of what happened. But I also do a lot of stuff. Like I, I have a lot of non gross hobbies. Like I collect carnivorous plants and yeah. I like to garden and I knit and I embroider and I do yoga. Yeah. So I have a lot of quite innocent pursuits that I sort of insulate myself with, you know, um, I would definitely say you have to have a lot of interests that have nothing to do with your profession yeah. if you're a psychologist. You brought up an interesting point, though, about what was vicarious... Vicarious traumatization. Traumatization. Well, I, I think about culturally right now, and I don't want to have this go political at all, but if you do nothing but watch the media all day, and, and I, I I feel as though I, I struggle with this sometimes in my head. Is the world as bad as the media wants us to believe, number one? And then number two, I think, gosh, if you watch that stuff all the time, you're you whether you're aware of it or not, and then sort of the, the opinions back and forth, it's going to create some anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So my personal thing with the media at the moment is I'm allowed to look at the media, meaning like the news, whatever, for 30 minutes a day. And that's it. I'll get all the highlights in my 30 minutes. There's really no need to sit there all day and watch it because it's mostly people rehashing the same stuff. Yeah. And you know, if some crazy shit happens like a world trade center event, I'll hear about that. I don't need to be on it all day. And so I do recommend to some of my clients who report, um, you know, significant increases in anxiety and then they'll tell me what they're doing and they're like, well, I watched the news today. And I'm like, well, how long did you watch it for? you know, three hours. And I'm like, yeah, you're going to stop that. Right. We got to put a time limit on that because I do, you know, I also think it's important to be informed and know what the hell's going on. Even if your news outlets are very skewed, which I think it's pretty safe to say that, that they are. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, that's why I like the English news. I lived in England for five years. I like the English news because it's sort of like, hello, this happened. Good evening. Right. And then it's over. <laughs> and they have less of these sort of pundits giving their bullshit opinions. Um, I mean, I guess I'm giving a bullshit opinion right now, but the, I, yeah, don't to, but I don't claim to be the news. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and I think it's important to have people that add a little perspective because if you, sure. if you don't um, add that to your clients or even your friends – you are going to get wrapped up in, in that rabbit hole of, of, of the media and the anxiety. And again, they probably know that most people don't have time to 
really sit down and read the newspaper, they're, they're probably watching it for like 20 minutes. So then they know the headlines have to sort of create a reaction because yeah. people aren't necessarily even reading the news. They're just sort of like, they're skimming and all they get are the headlines. And But it's also addictive. Like I, I call it, tra- I mean, I don't know if this is a real term, but, or if I'd read it and I'm regurgitating it, but it's tragedy porn. Hmm. Like tell me the worst shit that's happening in the world today. That's, that's what's going to sell. It's tragedy porn. It's ridiculous. Like, you know, no one's as interested in the really nice stories. They want to hear about the explosion in Beirut and they want to hear about the latest race, racial issue. And, and people want, I feel like it's almost a divorce from our own emotions. Like I need this so I can have an emotional reaction about something instead of looking at my own existence and saying, okay, how can I enrich this? Yeah. And again, I'm not saying don't look at the news, but I do think the emotional reaction you can get from it is quick. It's instant gratification. I can feel something by reading this inflammatory stuff. And it's addictive. Feeling is addictive. I think that's why I get concerned and I think that sort of was the reason why I started talking about technology and social media a couple years ago because I felt I was becoming addicted. I felt confused as to how to use this platform because I do believe if you're a small business owner, a writer, an artist, a painter, you own a yoga studio or something, it's obviously important to use but then... It feels like the creators of these platforms know that it's addictive. It's this, I was reading an article where it's this strange, if I know somebody's going to tell me something, it's not as exciting as opposed to living in this world where there's the chance that something can happen, very similar to Las Vegas. And that's sort of, that's what's going on. And and so I felt like these tools are, are really controlling people's brains. Oh, they are. I'm a terrible Instagram clickbait purchaser. Hmm. I, I buy that shit. Let me let me tell you a weird thing. <laughs> let me tell you a strange, really quick story. I I am I never watched QVC. Mm-hmm. But I I recently over the last six weeks bought three things off of Instagram, and they were all from clearly from China despite the fact that the advertising made it feel like they were American products on Instagram. And because then I opened up the booklets, one was like a neck massager, one was a light, like the spelling is all wrong. And, and I, my brain started to go like, huh, it's almost like Facebook or Instagram are like in cahoots with like Chinese companies to get people to buy these products. Almost. Yeah. And I find 50% of them suck. Like 50% yes. of the things I buy suck, but 50% is actually pretty cool. Like I brought, I bought some vine, like things you stick on your wall to help your vines grow on the wall. They're great. Okay. But yeah, like I, I think that I am probably addicted to social media, but what I find is that I really, and, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm still, I'm still bad, but like my social media doesn't depress me. Hmm. I don't follow influencers. I'm not interested in looking at some hot chick on a beach. Like, I don't give a shit about those people. Sorry, I don't. Um, You don't have to apologize to me. I'm not going to post a bikini photo tomorrow. Don't worry. Well, if you posted one, that might be more interesting. But, you know, I, I, you've seen one chick in a thong. Like, you, like, it's fine. I get it. Yeah. Um, and some people like that. A lot of people make a really good living doing that, but I'm not interested in seeing a a woman who's been working out way more than me looking hot. Like that'll make me sad. Yeah. So I don't look at it. So I follow weird stuff. Like I follow a lot of like antique accounts, like people that find a, a bizarre antiques or like weird plants and like dogs and stuff that makes me feel nice. And I feel like a lot of people follow these accounts that kind of make them feel bad, like aspirational accounts. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really dangerous. And I don't like it. 
how has well first of all you brought up and we spoke on the phone about a week ago and i i love this show euphoria on hbo did you ever watch it and I did. I, I many reasons why I liked it, but one specific reason I liked, and this this connects to what you're talking about, I felt like it really showed the teenage world of social media and how you literally, it feels like, have two lives. You, you know, you have your real life day to day, and then the Instagram social media life, which can become this volcanic explosion where it actually overwhelms your real life and people are more concerned about their social media life than their real life. And you brought up this interesting thing. You, you said when you go home without social media, you know, you can turn everything off, but now it's like nothing ever turns off it, at, at any moment. And you brought up the bullying ex- experience. It, you, it can continue. Like if you get bullied at school, you go home, but then they could start bullying you on Instagram and it, it just never ends. Yeah. It never ends, and you can't turn turn it off because the rest of your social life is on online. So you don't want to miss out. There's like this idea of like, what if I miss out? And there's like a social currency going on here. Whereas, so like I was bullied really bad when I was in middle school, um, but it was cool because I would go home, and then I did a lot of ballet, and I had friends at ballet, and like so there was a break. You got a break from it, but now you get bullied at school in real life and probably online while school is happening. And then you go home and you're being bullied online. That's why you have these kids that commit suicide really young. There's there's a bunch of cases, like really tragic cases of these poor kids who online, like you, you can see the messages, like people telling them that they're worthless and they should hang themselves and shit like that. And it's just sort of like... Um, I think it's very damaging and it also there's a break with reality as well like like you start to again like you say you value your online persona more than your real one and the online one is it's just empty it's I can't remember what philosopher who said it but it like ashes in the mouth hmm. it's not real in any way it's all bullshit and you know, what's happening, like I'm sitting in my dining room right now, this is my real present existence. And you know, you're a yoga teacher, it's all about like, existing in the present and and being cognizant. And social media takes that away, you're not there. You're not, I don't know, you're not existing in in your real life, which is truly meaningful. It might not be exciting, you might not be in a thong in Fiji, Right. You know, but, but like, I'd rather this, I think. Yeah, me too. This is the thing. Although it's in your pocket or on a computer screen, the emotional impact of that stuff is, is I think, amplified because it's a public platform, because other people can comment. I can't tell, tell you how many times I go onto Facebook, uh, not as much anymore, but there's no discussions happening. It's it, everything turns into a yelling match. And I think it is why there's more anxiety and tension in our real lives, because I feel like it's carrying over to, to the analog world. Well, it's all ego based. Hmm. Like you get into a Facebook debate because you think that you are right and the other person is wrong and they're threatening your ego. They're threatening your, your point of view and you have the anonymity to say whatever the hell you want. And they don't even really exist. The person that you're saying, like in, in your brain space, this person isn't sitting here. They don't even really exist. Technically I can say whatever the fuck I want to protect my ego. Yeah. So, like, no racist or sexist or anybody ever got in a Facebook debate and was like, you know, I think my attitude might be wrong. I'm going to change it. Like, no, that doesn't happen. You just have back and forth and whoever gets the last word wins. But what do they win? They, They win nothing. Yeah. Except the satisfaction of really, like, stroking their own ego. How? Mental masturbation. Yeah, exactly. Totally. How 
have you noticed, how long have you been a, um, a, a therapist for? How many years? Um, five. Five. What? Five in therapy and then the rest of my experience is research. Got it. And I'm. have you noticed, what have you noticed over the last like four or five months? Since the pandemic? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I currently have a huge waiting list. <laughs> much longer than it usually is. Um, I've had strangers, well, not strangers, but you know, like people on Facebook that you haven't talked to in like 20 years, like they'll message me and be like, can I have therapy? <laughs> I'm like, no. Yeah. That's weird. Um, so like, I just like the volume of people seeking mental health, uh, treatment has gotten really high. But also anxiety is extremely high. And I think a lot of people are thinking about death more. Yeah. A lot of young people. Um, and on the one hand, obviously, I don't want them to suffer. But on the other hand, like, I do think we've sanitized a lot of existential realities, like death, um, in the Western world. Like, yes, you're going to die. I'm going to die my husband upstairs is going to die. Like that shit's going to happen. And a pandemic really throws it in your face. And so, you know, I think that's the biggest problem and causing the most anxiety. A lot of people who already had anxiety now have far worse anxiety. Right. Um, and then a lot of my older clients are experiencing a lot um, higher rates of depression because they're more at risk, their grandchildren aren't coming to visit them, or, you know, whoever. Um, so that's really been, just everything is a lot more intense and a lot more heightened. Um, I know the psychiatrist that we work with uh, has had a huge influx of people wanting medication. Um, and, you know, I also, I don't really like doing online therapy. Yeah. I think there's an intimacy of actually sitting in person with someone um, that you can't replicate and that is far more healing than if you are in your home and I'm in my home. Um, so I'm actually really uh, looking forward to going back to the office. Are you not considered, though, essential? So you like couldn't you practice six feet in the office or something? Or? Yeah. We are, um, but we have to both wear masks. The client and therapist wow. have to wear masks. So I've been given the option to my clients of like, do you want to come in? Because I also can't make them come in. Like that's not, you're not going to do that. Um, nobody wants to come in. I have one person who comes in in person and it's really, I don't like that either because like imagine telling someone, some of your most upsetting things in your life where you both look like this. <laughs> right. Like it's really fucked up and weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't have a solution other than wait this out. Um, but, you know, I don't think it's really great for people to work from home constantly like this. I think people need a purpose and a reason to get up and, like, put pants on. I think that's weirdly important. I mean, I have very, I've been very suspect of politicians, the government, scientists just suggesting stay home. And beyond just the political and personal and corporate agendas that I think are going on, um, I, I just, you, I think these politicians are in the clouds because. They're still getting paid, even though we're shut down. And then, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, and I'm going to talk about this in another podcast, but, you know, there was this article that came out where this comedian was saying that New York is dead. Like, that, that city is never going to come back. And then Jerry Seinfeld writes an op-ed piece in the New York Times yesterday, basically calling this guy putz and saying, you know, New York will never die. We've been through this, that, and that. And, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, you're like this 
uber billionaire white guy uh, living in your penthouse loft in Manhattan, you're clueless to what's going on here. And and I think the mental, financial, familial repercussions of just telling people to stay home um, with no end in sight, I, I'm... I'm sure your your business is going to benefit and you're going to be really busy, but I, I just, I don't know how we're going to mentally. Oh, I want to be this busy okay. at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I agree with you that Jerry Seinfeld is, is a rich dude in his penthouse, but I think it's really also quite unfair for, for people to say, Oh, New York is dead. LA's dead. That's just patently not true. Hmm. What do you mean dead? Like, oh, people aren't aren't lining up at Spago to have dinner? Like, that's not dead. Like, I think, I, I really don't like blanket throwaway statements like that because it really kind of insults humanity and our resilience. Mm. Like, New York's going to be fine. LA's going to be fine. Yeah, people are going to die. People are going to die. And that's what's going to happen. And that sucks. And that's really shitty. But that doesn't mean that all the things that we enjoy about existence are going to die with them. I, you know, I, I, maybe this will be our, our therapy moment. Because, you know, when I look outside and just the, the energy and the fear um, and the mask wearing and... A lot of corporations are saying, why should we spend twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a month on rent? We could just have people stay home. Um, and I, I just I think there's something about fear and the fear of dying. I don't know. there's I certainly want to be hopeful and and I strangely have have thrived quite a bit throughout this pandemic personally. But when I look outside and just, pick up the vibe and the energy. I know we're still kind of in it, but I don't know. I, I'm having a hard time trusting that that L.A. I mean, because the entertainment industry, just it, L.A. sort of had this aura about it. And I don't see creators having that desire to come out here. I don't know. I just I'm not sure. I I have a hard time trusting that that everything's going to be like it was and two, three years. I think it's going to be a long time. But that's the, that's the thing. Like it's not trusting that everything's going to be like it was. It's mm. trusting that everything is going to carry on. And I think, and I, I guess I tell a lot of people like that are terrified of change. It's like, like, yeah, shit isn't going to be the same, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be good. Hmm. Because humans are still the same, even if a bunch of them die. Like, there's still going to be young, excited people that are writing scripts and doing crap and, and filming stuff in the middle of La Cienega when I'm trying to get to CBS. Right. There's, they're still going to be doing that. Like, I feel like it's really discounting the tenacity of the human condition. And, like, you know... I, don't, I was talking to my dad. My dad is this 73-year-old, like, 6'5", like, dour New England guy. And, you know, I was sort of despairing a bit similarly to you. And I was like, Dad, the world has gone to hell in a handbasket. And he just looked at me and, like, put his beard down. And he was just like, well, little Mackie, the handbasket will come back. Don't worry about it. And I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that confidence that's fine but you know I know I've heard like a lot of people are moving to Austin or or Colorado or you know whatever but the thing is like if enough people move to enough places it's just going to be another LA hmm. so like yeah okay maybe LA won't be the center of existence for people anymore but guess what it never was yeah because the center of your existence should be yourself and your family and, and what you value. Like, L.A. is just a place. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you know, I just, I used to, I mean, I still love, love it out here. Um, 
just a lot of the things that I loved about this city and, and the arts and going to the movies and going to the theater and the restaurants. Definitely going to go back to the movies. I, I, last point, I guess we'll talk about a little more than I have a few other things I'm thinking about. I'm just, there is something about the media's working of people's fear. I, I just, I had, I have this, I was at Bay Cities in Santa Monica, the sandwich place. And the manager, we were outside in line, we had our masks on, and there was a lot of us. And the manager had to lift his mask up just to to speak loudly because so people could uh, could hear him. And the woman that was the closest to him literally was like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Put your mask back on. And I'm I I just see and feel that energy and I and the six feet thing and I, I don't know. I'm, I I love your optimism, and I'm not trying to be glass half empty here. But there's something about fear. It's just they've done the media has done a great job to scare the hell out of people. Right, and I am not. Um, I'm oftentimes I'm a glass half empty kind of chick about very specific little things in my life, but I believe like this fear, like people's propensity for fear and to give into fear always existed. Hmm. It was always here. That woman was always afraid of something, right? This has just given people a very specific thing to focus on. And they believe that they have a modicum of control over it by wearing a mask and staying six feet apart. And it seems like there's evidence to suggest that that is what we should do. But my thing is I, I have done all the exact same shit I've always done. It's just more of a pain in the ass now. Right. Um, so, you know, I went to the plant store today, bought some plants, went to Target, and I've been doing this the entire time. If it's open, I will go. Maybe not in the first week or two of the pandemic, but, you know, it is very true. The only thing you have to fear is fear itself. Like, fear keeps you from living. Hmm. And some people, rightly so, should be cautious about coronavirus. But I also know some older people who are like, you know what? Like, I'm 80 and I don't know how much time I have left, so I'm going to my kid's wedding. And it's like, that's your choice. And I think that most of these choices should be respected in a way. How, how often do people talk to you about death? Like, and I don't want this, I mean, my podcast has a tip, well, not always, it's not always happy, but I mean, I've been thinking about that lately. My parents are getting older and it's weird. I'm not like scared of the coronavirus. Um, I'm scared of other things that could, you know, crop up. Um, but how often, like, how often of a talking point is that for you? And what do you, I don't know if you're religious, but can can you... What is is every situation different, or or what? Where do you go, or where do you create comfort for somebody? There isn't any comfort. Yeah, and there's <laughs> not supposed to be. I don't think you're supposed to be like, oh, yeah, gonna die. I'm pumped about it. Like you're attached to the people in your life, the things in your life, the way that you are. Um, I think the discomfort with death should be a motivation to make the most of what you're doing, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, I'm also, like, I'm, I don't want to seem like I'm some awesome guru, like, preaching from a fucking mountaintop or something, because, yeah, death is scary. You know, my mom thought that she might have breast cancer last year, and I was extremely upset. Um, but I talk about death a lot. Hmm. Um, People, some people are absolutely terrified of it and some people are fairly indifferent. Um, the people I've known that have died or I've seen die, it kind of looks all right. It's like the lead up that people are scared of. People are scared of like suffering. Yeah. I, and, and a lot of people are actually scared of like what happens afterwards. Is it nothing? I don't know. But most of the people that I talk to are really just afraid of the, the lead up. They don't want to suffer. They just want to like clunk out in their sleep. Right. <laughs> um, 
But, you know, there's a whole school of psychotherapy that talks about, it's called existential psychotherapy, that talks about um, how a lot of a lot of behaviors are that sort of stem from this fear of death and a fear of the unlived life and am I doing it right and all this stuff. And it's all about sort of like being authentic and that's the best way that you can feel comfortable or at least have a modicum of, of comfort about the fact that you will one day not be here. So if, if you, Eddie, are on your deathbed, right, and you think, okay, right, have I done everything I can? Have I acted in a way that is consistent with my values and my beliefs? You will feel better. You'll. It's kind of like I tell, I often say to people like, all right, you have decisions to make. What decisions are going to make it easier for you to sleep tonight? And that's a useful thing to ask because I like to be able to sleep at night. And if yeah. I don't act in a way that's consistent with who I know myself to be, I'll have trouble with that. And then I'll be a total bitch in the morning. So I ask people about that a lot. It's like, are you acting in a consistent way with who you really are? I'm a different person when I don't get a good night's sleep. And it's like, I, I get troubled by this world we live in where there's cameras everywhere. There's this perception on Instagram and social media that everybody has like this perfection going on and they have everything figured out. I think we're losing touch with the imperfections and the subtleties and the... Um, how easily we can get off track. I mean, literally, if, if I don't have a good night's sleep, I'm not the same person tomorrow. And then if oh, some I'm terrible. And then if somebody like cuts me off, then that's gonna add a little bit of anxiety. And then if I have a beer, and then if like there was a little stress at work or somebody said, you know, it's so easy to sort of get off your rails. Mm -hmm. And we don't really talk about that. And and I think and then coupled with the fact that People just sort of have cameras out and they're ready to sort of pounce on, pounce on anyone or anything that looks like a fool. Um, I don't know. I think all of that adds a lot of strange anxiety today. There's an emptiness to some of the behaviors that I find upsetting. There's an emptiness to pulling out your phone to, or even taking multiple pictures of you and your friends, because one of you has a double chin in that one, and you know one of you doesn't look great, and, and it's just sort of like, what are you? I don't know what you're you're trying to present an image of perfection to the world, but that image of perfection seems like it's ultimately damaging to you. I don't know. I perfection doesn't exist, and. And I often have clients comparing themselves to other people and you will, no one is going to leave this life unscathed, not a single person. Yeah. And, and it's just so unrealistic to look at the woman in Fiji and the thong on Instagram and think, Oh my God, I really want her life. Do you know how long it takes to get to Fiji? <laughs> I would look like a monster after being on that flight yeah. and I would be a horrible bitch. Like I'm a really unpleasant international flyer. Like I would have to sleep for five days to get on that beach probably. <laughs> so like you're slaving away for this one picture moment. I don't know. It just seems like, it seems miserable to me. How much of all of this is, is about control? Oh, tons. Oh, a lot of it. Yeah, like we, we are just control freaks. Yeah, and, and that's the other thing with this pandemic is like, oh, you thought you had some control in your little life? Oh, here's a pandemic. You don't know shit, and you don't have control over shit, so good luck. And that's why, And that's why people run to all these remedies and all these things like, oh, I'll wear a mask, and I'll be six feet apart, and I'll sanitize my Amazon packages, and then I'll be safe. Doing those things gives you like a little boost of, okay, I'm safe, I'm safe. 
But the reality is you're never safe and you never were. Yeah. Because the same thing awaits us all. It might be coronavirus. It might be you got hit by a truck. I don't know. Hopefully not today. Well, that's that's a couple more. Th- Are you okay with time? I have a couple more things I'm thinking. Yeah, I, I it's five fifteen is my uh, cool my appointment. I was thinking though, what I get a little frustrated with is that the fear mongering and the fear creation going on. Like literally, I ride my bike every Saturday, and I a few there was like a few weeks in a row where I almost got hit by a car because people were staring at their phone ironically and not paying attention, and I say to myself. You know, I I know that Dr. Fauci and the government's just saying stay home, but you know, the just by being alive and waking up every day, there is the chance that something bad is going to happen, and we, it's like we just sort of forget that. And and I, I don't know, like if if you're alive, if you're a human being, there's a chance something shitty's going to happen, whether it's coronavirus related or not. That's just it's just reality. And I think that's why things like natural disasters and stuff really shake people because, yes, I'm in my house right now. I feel pretty, like, safe, I guess. But, you know, an earthquake could could happen. And people get very upset about that because it really pisses all over this idea that we've we've managed to tame anything. Like, we try our best. And that's kind of it. Yeah. I do feel like, and I'm not saying you should go around either and be like, oh, you're going to die one day, Eddie. Don't forget, because that's miserable. But at the same time, I think there's a balance between not acknowledging anything and, you know, acknowledging every bad thing, because then you're anxious for a different reason. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of control issues, and I think a lot of the anxiety of coronavirus has a control factor to it as well. Um, And... It's hard to maintain friendships with people who are who have a different level of caution about it than you do. Um, I have friends who are still sanitizing their Amazon packages, and then I have friends who are like, I'm actually going out to dinner tonight with a really close friend, and she was just like, "We'll be fine. We're going to go out to dinner." And I mean, I've been going out this whole time, but. But yeah, so navigating those friendships, I think, has been hard because it's annoying. Yeah. (laughs) It's annoying being around someone who is wearing a mask while they talk to you and, and like, you have to meet up in a park and you have to sanitize everything that you bring and you can't give them anything. It's very, like, um, I don't know. I don't know what the fuck's going on, but... But I'm just like, okay, we won't hang out. Fine. If yeah. it's this much of a hassle. But, you know, then I think people alienate friends. It's a mess. Yeah. <laughs> so I think a lot of people feel alienated. And I guess I'm just very curious if you can, like, think back. Um, how does one decide to get into therapy? And then beyond that... Focus on. I think you were. You said uh, rape and gang rape and something pedophilia. How does um, how does that all happen? Well, I was getting a psychology degree and I was getting bored. What, what were you getting bored with? What do you mean? I was getting bored reading about depression and bipolar and and you know people coming in. Like my professors would tell us stories about clients they had and it was like, oh, she was very anxious. She didn't like dirt. And it's not like that. That's a very terrible problem to have. I'm not saying these things are not real mental illnesses and they're not terrible. But I was just like, I think that would really be, I don't think I'd be good at just talking to those people. Yeah. So I was like, how can I make this more exciting? I know what I'll do. I'll do forensic psychology and work with criminals. So I did a forensic master's and there happened to be a sex offender prison nearby and someone asked me if I wanted to go interview some rapists at the prison once. Wait, hold on, my cat is scratching at the door. They asked me if I wanted to go interview some rapists down at the prison. Okay, so wait, you're you're at school, sorry to to get interrupted by my cat. Um, And there was a what across the street? 
Uh, no, there was a sex offender prison like 30 minutes away. Okay. And uh, I had to write a master's thesis anyway. And one of my supervisors said, hey, you want to go interview some rapists and some pedophiles and we'll analyze the data and you can use that for your thing. And I was like, yeah, all right. So I go down there uh, and I interviewed them and it was very interesting. And I... What, what, what was, wait, what was interesting about it? Um, well, sex is really interesting is because it's kind of like the only evolutionary process that is regulated by law. Hmm. Think about it. Um, and, you know, I think I had this Clarice Starling fantasy of like going in and like being cute, but like talking to all these badass, bad people and and I did that for a long time, and then it got boring. So, you know, anyone out there who wants to do that, it gets old. Hmm. Um, and even when they tell you super creepy stuff, that gets old, too. So, anyway, I did maybe a bunch of interviews with these guys. And I wrote a paper on it, published the paper. And then I, I went to some conferences, nerdy, like, academic conferences where you pretend to be interested in everyone's stuff. And, um, <laughs> when you're really only interested in like one thing, but anyway, um, so I did that and then I kind of got known for that a little bit, not like famous known, but people were coming up to me and wanting to discuss it with me. And then I met a woman who asked me if I wanted to do a PhD and I did. And she said, I'm working on gang rape. You want to do that? And I was like, yeah, all right. Cause I was dating my husband at the time in England and she was English and I was like, cool, I'll go do this PhD. Gang rapist will probably be interesting. And then I can see if this dude works out, which he did. I married him Yeah. <laughs> and I got my PhD. So I, I did all the things I set out to do. Um, but I just sort of gotten, got published with this information and then jobs kept coming up and I kept taking them. Do you think people are inherently good or bad? I think they're good. You do. So then what makes people bad or what happens? Abuse. Yeah. Abuse, neglect. That That's what fucks you up. Um, and, you know, I've only met, I get really annoyed when people throw around terms like narcissist and psychopath and stuff like that. Like, I've only met two people in my career that I thought were truly psychopathic and sort of beyond redemption, um, which is a pretty good track record. Cause I've probably seen, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, maybe a thousand, I don't know, but I've only met two where I was like, Oh man, we need to keep the death penalty just for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not a death penalty chick, but like I've only met two people where I thought, okay, this is no, no. Um, but even those people, like if you talk to them, they were, they had very significant abuse histories. Let me ask you though, um, this word narcissism though, I'm, I'm curious because yeah. I, I don't, I, I believe that there's levels of narcissism, but I, I do think that, that Instagram and social media is promulgating the most narcissistic generation or group of people ever. Um, cause you're, basically thinking nonstop about yourself. Yes. Um, but a lot of people don't meet the diagnostic criteria. Everyone has dimensions of narcissism. Absolutely. And I do, I agree with you. I think, um, social media does play into that, but narcissistic personality disorders is, is your personality is narcissistic, not oh, I'm obsessed with myself for the time I'm doing this photo shoot for Instagram. You know, it's, it's pervasive and it ruins your, your life. Um, and I don't see social media necessarily ruining someone's life. Um, but the thing is like someone 
narcissistic personality disorder is extremely rare as well. That doesn't happen that often. Um, and when you meet someone like that, you'll know. Like this, this Instagram narcissism is kind of like narcissism light, hmm. you know, and, and I, I don't believe that, that a social media platform can cause you to develop NPD. Again, that stuff usually happens through abuse. So I, I agree with you. I think it really taps into the narcissism that is inherent in all of us. Um, and people can become jaded and sort of assholey. That's not, that's my clinical term, right. um, but it doesn't, I don't think it speaks to the core of who they really are. It speaks to, you know, creating an image or, or doing an act. Um, I, let me, let me just go down this talking point with you just a little bit more. Um, okay. I'm just thinking about the act of posting the selfie. I, I, I think, though, it, it does somehow get people to be caught up in how they are um, perceived, looked at. Because mm -hmm. what it does is that then you, you think about your posts and you think about comic. It's like it... it it might not be a narcissistic personality disorder, um, but I don't know. I feel like we're having millions and millions of people walking around thinking about themselves and and what like that that platform. Even me, you know, I'm guilty of it. I post a I post a photo of me in the studio, and then I I mean, it, it is all about me. You know, it, it's I mean. Part of the reason why I like posting about my podcast is that I feel like it gets people to at least go to an area where they can listen to something that will hopefully enrich their lives and add like some different perspective or maybe they are thinking about a different way. But it just it feels like we are living in a general in a world now where everybody is primarily thinking about themselves. Maybe it's not a disorder, but I, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure. Well, it's not great. <laughs> I don't think it's great. I don't think it's good for you necessarily. Um, I don't know. It kind of feels like we're on a train that we can't stop at this point. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think as my husband says, swings and roundabouts, like I do think the pendulum swings against these things eventually. Um, because it is all made up. It's not, I don't even know what the internet is. You know, like what is, I don't even know what it is. Um, but especially with social media, like even, even since the pandemic, there's been a backlash against influencers and how out of touch it is and how it's not, it's just not representative of real existence and the real struggles of people, you know, right this second. So I don't, I think I'm just more optimistic than you. Than probably, you are. probably, yeah. I don't think social media is great. I think it's bad for mental health. I, that that is my honest opinion. Yeah. But my other thing is like, all right, well, what do you want to do about it? Like, what are we going to do? Because I don't think I can jump off that train, and I don't think a lot of people can or are willing to. So how do you navigate it in a way that doesn't make you need me? Right. Well, I appreciate you. Do you like Mac or Mackenzie? What's What's the deal? Um, most people. I mean, it depends. If you're a client, I'm Doctor Lamba. <laughs> if you're a student, I'm Doctor Lamb. You can call me Mac. It's fine. Well, I don't. Chris always says Mac. I I typically have said Mackenzie, but I, most everybody calls me Mac. Mac. Okay. Well, Mac. I really appreciate How was it being on the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral podcast? It was fine. I always feel weird being on podcasts because I don't know what anyone wants. So I just babble at them and hope for the best. Yeah, well, I thought we um, were focused and you knew that I was probably going to talk about technology and that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I Googled you. I vet people. Oh, no. You, you Googled me. Oh, geez. Been doing it for years, so you know. I wanted to make sure that I'm not some weirdo. <laughs> well, 
I've done your yoga class, so <laughs> not that weird. Exactly. Um, well, I appreciate you talking to me. It means a lot that you took the time, especially that you've got a waiting list of people that want to see you for help. So, Well, just because I have a waiting list doesn't mean they're all going to get seen. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'll try my best. But yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And um, again, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Of course. All right. Bye. Bye.